Good morning. Our reading today comes from uh, the book of John, chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command, love each other. If the world hates you, keep in mind that, the, that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we've been in this series um, entitled Rediscovering Jesus from the very beginning of uh, the first semester. And uh, we're concluding that series by looking at a couple of chapters in the gospel of John. And my intent originally was to look at chapters 14, 15, and then also 16 and 17 before Easter. That, of course, becomes a little bit more difficult when we have things like ice storms and cancellations of worship services. It also becomes a little more difficult when you dig in the tech, into the text, as I was doing last week, and, and only late in the game realized there's just no possibility for me to adequately cover this entire text. So I'm going to focus, to let you know right up front, mostly on the the notion itself of what it, what it means to abide in Christ, or as the title suggests, living in Christ. So many of the verses uh, that you heard read, I won't address, but we'll come back to them uh, and think about them later. You notice, don't you, from this series and from reading the Bible on your own, that Jesus frequently speaks and teaches with images. He uses images and and plays on those images. Now, those images were something that the readers would have been very familiar with. But he also uses stories. Sometimes we think true life stories. Sometimes we think stories that were made up 
And both of them often are called parables. A variety of stories Jesus uses to communicate his truth. And again, the expectation is that those who heard the stories and those who heard those images would have understood them very well. So if we're going to interpret a passage, it's important, isn't it, for us to try to understand what those first hearers actually heard. What did the vine mean to them? What did the Father's house mean to them? But if that's where we stopped, I think we would sell ourselves short. Because the Scripture itself is a declaration from those people in retrospect for us today and for the future. So I, I want very deliberately this morning to ask two basic questions. What did the disciples hear? That's the first question. Second question, what is the Spirit saying to the church through what the disciples heard? So first, what did the disciples hear? They heard this. I, said Jesus, am the vine. We think of it as a wonderful image, and it is. We try to determine what it means to be a vine and what the pruning meant. And all those things are important. But I would suggest that before they thought of any of those things, the first thing they thought of was, oh my, here he goes again. He's launching into a radical statement. He's actually saying something that nobody else would say. Because as a part of their tradition, the vine, among other images, represented the nation of Israel. Almost unequivocally, it represented the nation of Israel. The Old Testament is full of images of the vine, all associated with Israel. It starts way back, but one, for instance, is a description of Israel that the psalmist gives us in Psalm 80. And in Psalm 80, the psalmist says, concerning Israel, God speaking, I took you like a vine. Imagine a potted plant that you would put in the back of your moving truck. I took you like a potted plant, a vine, a sprig from a vine. And I transported you from Egypt to this place called Israel. And there I planted you in the land. You, Israel in this land are my vine. Other images that are used are used prophetically when the prophets get very serious about false prophecy and when they get very serious about the vine not bearing fruit and they castigate Israel and the prophets that are leading them astray and say, you're being unproductive. This vine that God planted has just gone out of control. My people, remember who you are. You're a vine. And I'm going to prune you. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Psalms, all through the Old Testament. But when they heard this, they didn't just think of those references, I don't suppose. They also thought of another image. Had they been in the temple just a few days earlier? 
they would have seen a gigantic vine growing, as it were, outside the holy place. But the gigantic vine growing outside the holy place was not a vine that was nurtured in soil, was not a vine that actually produced grapes. It was the image of a vine nurtured by the soil that produced grapes. But it was made out of gold. And this beautiful vine that went up, huge, overarching vine to the entrance of the holy place represented the nation of Israel. And people who were wealthy in the nation traditionally would bring enormous amounts of gold and ask the craftsmen of the day to craft for them, representing the nation of Israel, another cluster of grapes on the vine. Josephus says that some of the clusters of grapes on that vine were as large as a man, let's say five to six feet tall. So when Jesus said to them, I am the vine, they said, oh my. The nation of Israel is God's vineyard. The temple represents the land and the nation of Israel. And Jesus, you're saying, you're the vine? Yes, he did. There's a lot that could go go into that statement, right? We could explore uh, many ramifications for that statement. But let me throw out one that will ruffle some feathers and create a mild bit of controversy, which is exactly what I intend for it to do. Jesus isn't essentially saying, I am the new Israel. I am the light of God for all nations. And the land that you think so essential as it relates to the kingdom of God, the land is not essential. I am. I am the vine. The land, a huge image of gigantic importance for the nation of Israel, all but disappears in the teachings of Jesus. Or to put it another way, Jesus says, I'm the vine. It's not Israel. It's not the land. I am the new Israel. By the way, the real controversial statement? Some versions of biblical prophecy haven't gotten the memo. I'll just leave it there. Second thing about the vine. Not only did the vine shock them, I would imagine, that Jesus said he was the vine. Number two, Jesus said, concerning the vine, it must be pruned. It always needed to be pruned. It always will be pruned. God has always pruned the vine. We could think of the nation of Israel, and undoubtedly they thought of that. Many times when God pruned that vine, the nation of Israel, 
chastise that vine, cut that vine. Jesus says, I'm the vine, and this vine will be pruned. I am the new nation of Israel, and those who are attached to me will be pruned. Now here the image escapes me, honestly, except for what I read. I know nothing of vines. I don't know how to prune them. I would kill them if I did. But a vineyard owner understands the importance of pruning a vine and knows how to prune a vine. I read this week uh, a man recounting how he learned as a boy to prune a rose bush. I don't know if the parallel is exact. I certainly learned a lot about pruning rose bushes, and I'm going to tell my wife about it so she can prune our rose bushes. I'm not interested in pruning rose bushes. But it was an interesting image. I know my wife will do a great job of it. It had something to do with the way rose bushes can overtake themselves, so to speak. They can turn inward. They can literally crush out the light that's given to them by using the light to turn in on themselves. And so you prune them. And you cultivate the branch that's going up to the light. And you prune it in such a way so there's not 150 roses. There's 25. Because the 25 are much better if pruned. I don't know anything about vines. I don't know anything about roses. I can just hijack these images to try to understand. I know something about pruning orange trees. I, I look forward to going down to Florida and picking an orange is another reason to resent me off the tree in my father-in-law's backyard and eating it right off the tree. It's, it's nothing like it. You won't find that orange in the grocery store. It doesn't exist. It comes off that tree. But the reason that tree bears fruit the way it should is because it's carefully cultivated in the soil. It's given exactly the right kind of nutrients. Iron is an important ingredient in the cultivation of a fruit tree. As a matter of fact, um, in the first couple of years, usually you pick all the fruit off. You don't let it bear fruit. You want the strength to go into the tree. Now, some people dispute that, but most people say don't let it bear fruit to begin with. Let it go into the tree. And then eventually, as, as the tree gets larger and begins to bear this unbelievable fruit, when the fruit-bearing season is over, the gardener, which used to be me on a large piece of property, would radically trim that tree. When we were done trimming those 25 orange trees in this small grove of property, you could see right through them. There were hardly any leaves left on them. It looked like stubs. That's all it was. We did all that in the summer. When the rain came and when the heat was there and when most of the growth took place and somewhere near the end of the summer, little buds would appear and then tiny little round green hard things that eventually became large navel oranges or grapefruit or lemons. I know the importance of, of pruning the tree in order to make it yield fruit. And Jesus says, The same thing goes on here. The vine's going to be trimmed. It's going to be pruned. Get ready for the pruning, Jesus says. I wonder what they thought. 
I wonder if they thought, is he going to prune us? I wonder if he thought, how's he going to prune us? I wonder if they thought, maybe the pruning will actually mean persecution. He kind of gives them a little bit of a window into that, doesn't he? A little later in the passage. I wonder, did they think that the pruning would be their death? No matter, Jesus says, I'm going to prune the vine. God will be the gardener that prunes this vine. And your life, he says, will be in me. So stay attached to the vine. Don't try to get your sustenance anywhere else. Because true life is found in me. Now, I promised you that I wasn't going to go very far in this text. That's where I end. Not going to talk about persecution. Not going to talk about love or brother and sister. Not going to talk about the coming Holy Spirit. We'll get to it later. What I now want to ask is, in retrospect, not just what did they hear, although that's incredibly important, what is the Spirit saying to the church today? I'm sure there could be many things, but let's think about a few of them. First, let's remind ourselves of what we have that they did not. When we interpret these scriptures backwards in retrospect, which were for us as well as for them, we have the knowledge of certain events in church history that they did not have before them. Right? In other words, at this point, remember, the disciples did not have the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They didn't have it. They didn't know it. They were doing their best, if they had any knowledge of it, to avoid it. They thought it would be a hideous crime not worthy of the Son of God. They didn't have that as it relates to their understanding. Something else they didn't have, they didn't have the coming of the Holy Spirit in the way that the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, and the way the church was blessed in a, a dra- dramatic, global way. They didn't have that. All they had was themselves and Jesus, and a few people they knew who were also following. Which means, they also didn't have what they delivered to us. They did not have the Gospels, so to speak, written down. They certainly didn't have the Epistles because Paul was about to persecute the church along with everyone else. They had not the written Scriptures. They didn't have any of that. You know what else they didn't have? They didn't have the worldwide body of Christ. As a matter of fact, I think they had no clue that there ever would be such a thing as the worldwide body of Christ. I mean, we know historically, right? They had no idea that there was a wide world out there the way we see it today. They knew nothing of the teeming millions beyond their borders that later would be called pagans. They knew nothing of that, and they had no idea 
that this gospel that they shared with Jesus would spread literally around the world. So they had none of that. Now, given that reality, we look at this passage with all that knowledge and we interpret it, correct? Our interpretation is not incorrect because it may have been different than theirs. It's informed by history and, I hope, informed by the Spirit. So what is the Spirit saying to the church? I think one of the things the Spirit is saying to the church, especially as the Gospels are written and as Paul's epistles are written, The Spirit is saying to the church that the Scripture, the words of Jesus, you hear that even in this text, let my words abide in you, that the very words of Jesus, the words of the extended Scriptures beyond the words of Jesus as well, are absolutely critical for life. Let me put it another way. Let me use a word that most people just run away from. Doctrine is important. What we believe and what the text says is critically important to our understanding of God, ourselves, and following Jesus. And so, for that reason, we need to be students of the Word. Discipleship, in effect, is, as I mentioned in the the email that was sent out. If you don't get those, maybe you'd like to, um, prepping you for the sermon. Discipleship, in effect, is three things. It's, It's doctrinal, words, what you believe. It's ethical, how you live. You can't detach how you live from the words if you really believe them. And it's experiential or mystical. It's the life of the Spirit. So as the Spirit speaks to the church, the Spirit tells the church the words of Jesus are important. Absolutely. Doctrine is important. Absolutely. The church has testified to that for years. The second thing that is of extreme importance is the ethical teachings of Jesus. To put it another way, Jesus doesn't just call us to believe. Jesus calls us to action. You know, there's a whole lot of people that believe. And they're not called to the appropriate ethical action in their life. We have a whole history of that in the church. We don't need to go any farther than 50 or 60 years ago. Or further back, when in our culture, the words of Scripture were actually used to reinforce racism. That's when we diced words with such precision and came to conclusions that were radically unethical. Jesus says, I'm not just talking about things up here. I'm talking about life down there. I'm telling you, I want you to live this. If you live in me, how could you live that way? There could be a hundred more of those examples of how we failed as the church and failed personally as believers. When Jesus says, I want my words to abide in you, He's not just saying, parrot my words. He's saying, live my words. Yes, doctrine's important, but ethics are critical. 
I think the third thing that the Spirit is speaking to the church is this. Being a Christ follower inevitably involves a spiritual experience. Not just a head knowledge, not just active hands and active feet, but a mystical, spiritual encounter with the living God. An encounter with the living God that takes you through all kinds of emotions. Fear and trembling. Sorrow over sin. Delight over redemption. Grace abundant and free. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. Hands that clap and feet feet that dance. And voices that shout. Because to know Jesus is to love Him. The Spirit says to the church, the reality of being a Christian is more than going through the motions. It's truly experiencing God. Um, I, let, let me stop there before I go on. For a cerebral bunch like us, it would be real easy to start with doctrine, move to ethics, and put a period at the end of the sentence, wouldn't it? Come on now, it would. Because emotions and the intellect, well, they're just different. I want to suggest that if we have not been moved moved to fear God, to love God, to weep, to be overwhelmed. We're not experiencing life in the vine the way we should. Now you say, well, Bob, I don't, so what do I do? Well, one thing you do is you go back to the Scripture. I could certainly assure you of that. Because to look into the life of Jesus and to see Jesus, if you truly see Him, will put you on your knees. But I think more than that, perhaps, at least for us, is a prayer. A prayer that says, God, stir my heart. Take me beyond my intellect, which I am so inclined to be an intellectual, and move my heart as only you can move my heart, oh God. Have you prayed that way? Or have you just said, that's not me? Perhaps we should. So following Christ as a disciple is, is doctrinal, it's ethical, it's experiential. But let me say something in conclusion about the third experience beyond what I've just said. Experience is wide-ranging, isn't it? Aren't you glad for the five senses? Aren't you delighted that you just don't function with one? Wouldn't you be devastated if you lost one? All of them are important. In much the same way, experiencing God comes through 
we might say, by analogy, our five spiritual senses or more. The point is, not all of us experience reality the same way. You know about learning styles, right? You know about love language, right? You know about those things. Let me encourage you, after I've just instructed you to ask for an experience with God, let me encourage you with this thought. You're wired a certain way. You're inclined to experience God a certain way in ways perhaps that others are not. It's just your DNA. Now we're instructed to experience God through all the spiritual disciplines, but I have to tell you that some of them, I hope you don't think less of me because of this, some of them are more meaningful to me than others. Some of them I'm more naturally inclined to than others. Now, you probably would be really disturbed if I told you that I didn't pray, right? As your pastor, I ought to pray. As a Christian, I ought to pray. But can I tell you this? I'm more inclined to study. My first instinct to be a person of the Word. Now, there's two things I want to say about that. First, I need to own the fact that that is my disposition and not browbeat myself because it's my first inclination. But second, I need to own the reality that I don't want to be unbalanced. So I exercise those other spiritual disciplines like prayer. When I say Scripture, what do I mean? I mean that some of us, like me, some of you, like me, are inclined towards the Scriptures as it relates to study, as it relates to meditating on the Scripture. I I know some of you, and you bring rich morsels of the wisdom of God to me, most of the time after a sermon. I could have used it before, but anyway... After a sermon, delightful morsels from the Word because you study the Word. You're, you're like that, that cow chewing its cud. Kind of a nasty image, but you, you allow that Word to nurture you over and over and over again. You read it, you study it, you memorize it, you meditate on it. That's important for the Christian life. And it's really easy for me to get vociferous about this one because I do it better than the others. But another part of uh, this Christian life, abiding in the vine, has got to be prayer, doesn't it? The one I'm, I'm less inclined to do than the first one? Oh, I pray, but it... if we were talking love languages, my first love language would be the Word. So what do I do in prayer? I do my best to discipline myself to think about how to pray. And for me, there are patterns that are helpful to me in prayer. Like, say, for instance, the Lord's Prayer and breaking it down and using those as categories for the purpose of prayer, structuring my prayer in that way. I actually use written prayers because, quite frankly, there's richness in them. And some of them are a thousand years old or more. And they say things that I need to say but wouldn't say. And those are rich. 
And sometimes I use acronyms, you know, like acts, adoration and confession and thanksgiving and supplication. I use structure in my prayer as often as I remember because I need it. Because prayer is powerful and prayer is important. There's another form, and and we could go on and on, right, Uh, that would create living in the vine, abiding in Christ. It's not only reading of the Scripture. It's not only prayer. It's, um, well, I'll just use the word, journaling. Anybody think of that as a spiritual discipline? I think it is. I think it's a wonderful spiritual discipline. To actually write down what God has been doing in your life and look back at it a year later? I don't do that. My wife does, and I'm blessed vicariously through that. What a wonderful spiritual discipline. What a way to abide in Christ. Do you know what happened a year ago in your life? Do you know what God was teaching you a year ago in your life? Do you know what you were going through a year ago in your life and how God dispensed grace to you in that circumstance? It will inform your future and your present. Maybe you're not inclined to it. Try it anyway. Be well-rounded. Another way of abiding in the vine, abiding in Christ through spiritual disciplines is service. And some people are so good at this. It's, it's their first love language, right? They just serve. Some of you are like this. You just intuitively and instinctively care for people. You care for the poor that you do not know. You care for the people inside the church. You know who's called to do that and why they're on this thing called the deacons? The deacons. We know these people. They've got the gift of caring and mercy. And they care for people. That's... A form of a spiritual discipline, I would suggest, that helps you abide in Christ by caring for your brother and sister in Christ. Just like the text later says about love one another. There's something else that's um, a really important thing for people's abiding in Christ. It's ritual. We don't do a lot of it. Usually on Sunday morning in first Sunday of the month, we read prayers of confession. We read the creed. But I don't know if you ever noticed, um, we don't use images. Well, the cross, that's it. Some people have rituals to their spirituality and if you were in their churches, there'd be kneelers on the back of the chair because at certain points it's just appropriate in the ritual called their liturgy to kneel and to pray and to pray those written prayers. It's appropriate to actually look at images or statues And find spiritual nourishment as you meditate on God by looking at those images. Or some people see as a part of an important part of abiding in Christ, literally what we call the Lord's Supper, they call the Eucharist. 
that in some profound sense to take that bread and to drink of that cup places them in a mystical relationship with Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, like nothing else does. Now, some of you are getting jittery, I can tell. Bob's going Catholic. You're all Catholic. Small C, not large C. We're all a part of the universal body of Christ, and there's a lot of believers around the world who do these things, and it's very important to them, and it's part of their experience of abiding in Christ and living in the vine. First of all, don't be dismissive of them. That's just arrogant, and that's one thing we're really good at around here. Really, we are. So first of all, don't be dismissive of them. Second of all, don't assume that because they enter into those rituals, they do not know Christ deeply. They may know Him very deeply. And third, don't pretend like you don't do the same thing. We've got Protestant rituals. This, during the music. Well, not so much in the first service, but the second, there's a lot of it. You're not going to find that in a high church setting. You're telling me that's not a ritual? Oh, it's just an expression of my heart. Oh, stop it already. It's a ritual. You enter into it just like they enter into other things. Yeah, maybe it comes from your heart, but maybe kneeling at that pew comes from their heart as well. Hands up and moving with the music. You say, oh, that's just impulse. It's ritual, my friends. You come to church on Sunday morning in different parts of the world in what you might call non-liturgical settings and there's all kinds of traditions. I love worshiping with people in other parts of the world, especially Africa, where um, the ritual is expressive. I'll just put it that way. It's a ritual. They dance, they sing, they shout, they clap. The ritual is expressing their joy to God with their bodies. I, uh, I had a, a, a parishioner back in New Haven um, that I pastored who one time told me she was a, an elderly lady. And I visited her for some reason. And I don't know how it came to this, but she said, Ruth Keller was her name. She said something about prayer. And she said, you know, Pastor, I, I pray every night before I go to bed. Ritual. And then she said, now she was probably 90 at that time, I guess. Um, she said, it's not as easy as it used to be because my knees hurt. And I thought, well, what's that got to do with it? Non-ritual, Bob. <laughs> she said, because... I can't pray without getting down on my knees. And as she said it, her voice cracked. She couldn't say anymore. And she paused and she said, it just doesn't seem right unless I do. 
maybe that's an experience of yours in private. Maybe it's not an experience of yours in public. But my friends, it's a ritual. And we all have them. And they're good. Because they're a tactile way for us to enter into the vine. They remind us of who our Lord is. They help us in one way or another to enter into His presence experientially. Okay? So what I'm saying is use yours, will you? You have them. And then second, explore others. Just try it. See if God will not be experienced for you in new ways. The final way I want to mention that we live in Christ, and don't look at your watch. We don't have a second service. I'm going to finish. We live in Christ (laughs) and abide in the vine, okay? The final way I want to mention is here in the church. Probably I say it so much that people hate to hear it. But friends, you cannot be a Lone Ranger Christian. There's no such thing as a churchless Christian. Not in the New Testament. There just isn't. We're a part of a body of Christ. We're not experiencing God on our own in a mountaintop or in our home or by ourselves, And that's the only place and the only way, the only important way we experience God. We experience God through the body of Christ. Call it a ritual if you like. But it's true, my friends. You cannot fully experience God without experiencing God in community. You can't. If you're thinking about it, stop. Don't be individualistic. You've got to be attached to the body of Christ. Oh, by the way, so the disciples looked at Jesus... And he said, I am the vine. Later, the church says, the body of Christ is present among you in the fellowship of believers. You don't have my viewpoint, I know. But I think that what happened when Jesus left is he left followers. And those followers became his body. And when I want to see Jesus, I look at you. I get the privilege every Sunday morning of looking at the body of Christ. I mean, I could just stop right now and stare. (laughs) Because I see so much of Christ's body right in front of me. And it's an awesome privilege. You know why it's so rich? Because I experience 
the body of Christ by experiencing you and your practices and your words and your testimony and your life. Now let me say this. You've got the same opportunity. Yeah, you don't stand up here every Sunday morning, but look around you. There is the body of Christ. There is the vine. Be attached. Learn from the vine. Don't be cut from the vine. Your life is in it. So learn from your brothers and sisters in Christ about what it means for them to be in Christ. Learn from them and be fully attached to the vine, the body of Christ. I guess the last thing I want to say is this. Thank you. Thank you for being the body of Christ. It's a privilege to be attached to the vine. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that in the person of Jesus Christ, you opened our eyes to new realities. You helped us to understand the the true uh, mission of those things we call the Old Testament scriptures that, that point to you. But you, you helped us to go beyond just understanding that mission through your teaching. You invited us to be in you so we could experience you and taste the delights of your body. And so, Lord, we thank you for the privilege of being a part of your body. We pray, Lord, that everyone here today will be encouraged to exercise the gifts that are theirs, to experience you deeply in the way that they're, they're wired to experience you, and then to experience you in multiple ways by entering into other rituals and spiritual disciplines that they see demonstrated around them. And Lord, to experience you just by being together and listening to the common wisdom of the saints in their presence. Lord, we thank you for this church, the body of Christ. And we pray that you will bless us and make us more fruitful. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.